When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to episode 222 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? Oh, just a quiet week in Tinseltown, Leslie. Uh, <laughs> so I guess we should probably just talk about how the All-Star game was. Did you have fun? I did, and my voice is still paying for it. So yeah, National yeah. League finally won one. Anyway, yeah. how's that? But yes, uh, you think there are other things to discuss this week? I mean, I don't know. You tell me. I think it's, yeah. you know, what do we say? All mailbag, right? Nothing, no news <laughs> this week, right? The world is topsy-turvy, yeah. and we well, will do our best. Sarcasm does not play in a podcast, just for future re- okay. uh, reference Okay, that's for ridiculous. <laughs> Sarcasm absolutely plays in a podcast. If you take At least away- not from me when you when you don't respond. I'm like, yeah, nothing. Radio silence, crickets. <laughs> Come on, Dan. There's lots going on. The actors are on strike. The Emmy nominations are out. And yeah, no one's going to campaign for shit. <sighs> Definitely things are topsy-turvy, and we will do our best to make sure that you guys understand things as well as we do, whatever that means. Yeah, well, before we get into everything about the the SAG-AFTRA strike and the Emmy nominations, we're going to start where we always do. Number one. Headlines. Leading off this week in headlines and casting shakeup, uh, breakout Renee Rapp will depart Max's Sex Lives of College Girls in, in its upcoming third season. She'll have only a recurring role in the upcoming season, which, Dan, that's a bummer. I love that show, and I love her on that, but I also dig her music, too, so... Bummed well, for the show, but happy what it, for her. What is she doing? Is that is this so that she can? Well, I, at this exact moment, nobody's making anything. But is that sure. for the is that for the Mean Girls movie, uh, which I believe she's starring in? I I don't remember. But anyway, uh, I mean, no reason was given. But I mean, the show has has served its purpose for her. She oh, is a yes. a breakout, a recording artist, an actress. Yeah, she's she's good. She, she is de- she is definitely one of the standouts of what is a very very fine cast. Uh, so, yeah, hope they. I assume they'll be able to find a way to bring in other characters who are equally or differently entertaining. Continuing along, we've uh, talked for several weeks about how back last May, the broadcast, well, that was two months ago, whatever it was. The God, broadcast was only two months ago. I don't <laughs> know. It's all just a blur. Anyway, uh, back at upfronts, which are still sort of kind of the thing, everybody announced their schedules. And with the exception of ABC, who announced a schedule dominated by reality, a schedule that we discussed in an interview, uh, would you like to uh, tell people what they can listen to or where they can listen to it, Leslie? That would be our interview with Ari Goldman, the head of scheduling with for ABC in episode 214 from May 19th, 2023. Indeed. So we talked at the time about how 
ABC was at that moment the only network actually being realistic, and everybody else had announced schedules featuring programming that they were not going to be able to deliver to people. Well, we've begun to see some of those revised fall schedules, in this case, Fox's first real schedule. And it's a lot of unscripted fare and a Sunday animation block. And ooh, finally, apparently Crapopolis, which I believe has been renewed for at least 15 more seasons at this <laughs> point. Uh, it's actually going to premiere. So, yay. Yes. Yay. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's not an exciting schedule. It seems to feature a lot of uh, animation and a lot of Gordon Ramsay. And that, what can you do? That's That's realistically what Fox has available. And it's what... All anyone's going to have available. Everyone else is looking for their own version of animation or Gordon Ramsay. ABC, as we saw, basically all reality stuff plus repeats of Abbott Elementary. And we're still waiting on the other networks to say, yeah, OK, fine. We're not actually going to have all I of mean, our shows. We know right? NBC, yeah, I mean, NBC really still is, is business as usual. But like, honestly, they, they do have a couple of shows that they ordered over a year ago that they that were supposed to be part of the midseason lineup. And then they got pushed till to the start till the fall, basically September, this September. So very strike proof, you know, at least in that regard. So they will have some new broadcast scripted shows on NBC, but uh, not a lot. It's going to be a bleak fall. And yeah. that's just the reality I mean, of where we are. Summer. <laughs> it's all just bleak, Leslie. This is yeah. a bleak podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it actually kind of is. But anyway, uh, continuing on in executive news, Mike Darnell, the head of Unscripted at Warner Brothers Television, is departing the studio after a 10-year run. He is one of the best-known Unscripted executives in the industry, uh, previously was part of the team over at Fox that developed American Idol, etc. So elsewhere, former 20th TV president Johnny Davis has exited role as president of the fellow Disney-owned studio ABC Signature. Disney has maintained that it will not merge the studios. That's right. They are not planning on merging their, all of their studios, but rather replacing Davis at the helm of the studio behind shows, including Grey's Anatomy. Top Chef has tapped season 10 winner Kristen Kish to replace Padma Lachmi as its new host for its upcoming 21st season, which will be shot in Wisconsin of all places. Sure. Why not? Uh, this is basically, I'm pretty sure what I said they should do when we had our brief mini conversation about Padma leaving Top Chef is that Kristen Kitsch really was the person who made the most sense. And I spent a couple minutes after this was announced going through various Twitter threads and, and Facebook posts and whatever with the announcement. I don't know that I have ever seen a decision of this sort that was met with such totally unanimous approval. This is one of those things where absolutely everybody looked at the decision, said, yep, we're going to miss Padma, but this is exactly what they were supposed to do. So well done. Yeah. I mean, it was the opposite of what happened with, with Jeopardy. So yeah, good for you, Top oh, Chef. You just wanted to do another Jeopardy segment. That is not what this is, Leslie. Jeez. Anyway, well done, Top Chef. You did the right thing. You didn't try to get too fancy with this. Kristen Kish is going to be terrific. In other unscripted news, HBO's makeover series We're Here has replaced all three of its judges for season four with drag race favorites Sasha Velour, Jada Essence Hall, and Priyanka taking over. I do not know who those people are, but I assume they are fabulous. Sounds good, Dan. Yeah, I don't watch <laughs> you, either. I don't, don't, I don't watch you, Drag Race either, I know, which seems off-brand off, off for me. but uh, I'm not sure if that's necessarily true. Anyway, um, I do not know if that has been met with the same level of universal approval as the Kristen Kish hosting Top Chef News, but yay! Number two. 
Up second this week, we return to the strike zone, and it's official. The actors are going out on strike. A federal mediator came in earlier this week with the attempt to get the studios and streamers and the Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA, back on the same page. That didn't happen. The contract originally expired June 30th, but was extended to July 12th. The negotiations ended with no new contract. And as we record this, we're a few hours removed from SAG-AFTRA president Fran Drescher just absolutely crushing a press conference where she really fired up the 160,000-plus uh, members of her guild, as well as the striking Writers Guild members who have been out on strike now, as we record this, 73 days with no negotiations lined up for any kind of a return to the table with the, the AMPTP yet. Fran Drescher was on fire. And um, I, I, I feel as if somebody at the AMPTP, if not absolutely everybody, had to be watching that and going, oh, if that's what Fran Drescher is going to be able to do in this circumstance, when every actor in Hollywood is out on a picket line doing the exact same thing, there is no way they can win that PR battle. She was, she was angry. She was, she was throwing around all sorts of different analogies for what this was. She, she talked about, she compared it to cancer and how the changes in the industry had already reached uh, stage four. She compared it to the French Revolution. She was all over the place, but with righteous indignation throughout. And as a result, the nanny <laughs> trended all over Twitter. So, <laughs> oh well. Yeah, I mean, as one showrunner put it to me, you know, uh, they've recognized, as writers have, that the studios have broken the business and are calling the studios to account. So it, it's been a, a fiery day. I mean, the day started, obviously, you know, at midnight when there was no news. And then come 1 a.m. Pacific time, well, certainly looks like they're going out on strike. Then it was going to be a, a meeting of the SAG National Board. They approved unanimously a strike. Obviously, they already had the strike authorization vote from its membership in their back pocket. So, And then, of course, the worst timing ever, newly reinstalled Disney CEO Bob Iger gave this huge interview to CNBC, very newsmaking, about a lot of different uh, subjects, which we'll get to in a later segment. But he really just pissed off all the writers all over again. And it's like he told David Zaslav, hey, hold my beer, you know, so. But we'll definitely, get to that in a minute. But Yeah, definitely a lot of antagonism and a lot of poking of the various bears that has been going on out of the producers slash studios slash AMPTP camps this week. There was the story in uh, our sister publication Deadline that talked about, Oof. yeah, <laughs> that had anonymous sources talking about how basically their goal was to uh, wait out the writers and force the writers into homelessness. And I don't mean that figuratively. They said we will get to a certain point at which the writers will not be able to afford their apartments and their homes and that that was their goal, which oddly didn't make the writers pleased. Yeah. And then, of course, the AMPTP issued a statement saying this is not coming from us, which I mean, e either way, I mean, it it's not a good week for the AMPTP. It's not a good week for anyone in Hollywood. Although, you know, if you want to look at this from an optics uh, viewpoint where we off, which we often do on this show, I mean, it it's great for labor, right? I mean, here's the, the writers have been out there for 70 plus days. The DGA took a sweetheart deal, basically could have gotten so much more if they had aligned themselves with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA. And now you've got 160,000 people 
likely to head to the picket lines. So just just wait for the moment when Meryl Streep, you know, is out on the picket line, you know, with a big a big sign slamming whoever at the AMPTP or whatever clever sign she's going to have. You know what I mean? Like, it's just. I, I, I'm just honestly kind of kind of speechless that it, that it's come to this. But it, at the same time, I guess it's really not surprising because, as we know, the the industry we've been talking about this since our podcast launched. Dan, the industry has changed dramatically. The way that that actors and writers were compensated was completely upended by streaming, and that's what they're seeking. Part of what they're seeking to course correct here, you know, like some of the, some of the quotes that that Fran Drescher had. It was just, I mean, I, I'm trying to pull them up. So give me a second. Uh, you know, he, he, here's one thing that she said: We had no choice. We are the victims here. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it. Quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things. How they plead pro- poverty that they're losing money left and right while giving millions to CEOs. It's disgusting. Shame on them. And she went on to say that they stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. You know, brought up, of course the use of artificial intelligence. I mean, from everything that my sources are saying, they, they're everyone saying the exact same thing that, that Fran Drescher said. They are very far apart. And, and the fact that a, a federal mediator couldn't do anything at all to bring them even one step closer, insane. And you had Drescher say that, you know, that with the extension from June 30th to July 12th, apparently the AMPTP, she said, canceled all of their meetings. So what they did, I guess they just bought themselves some more time to market Oppenheimer and, and Barbie, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, lots of lots of strange maneuvering around that. Like they had the the timing of the Oppenheimer premiere so that they could get the actors on a red carpet before the actual strike began. And there were questions at the press conference after the main initial statements where, among other questions that they were asked, you know, what are what are actors able to do in terms of in terms of promotion, in terms of, well, anything. And it's going to ultimately be almost identical to what the WGA regulations were, where they were all told explicitly, do not promote your things that are actively premiering and funded by a studio slash network that were part of the agreement that we're attempting to (laughs) to get revised, which makes sense. But then there were also kind of minor backtrackings, both with the WGA, where they were saying, okay, but you can you know, they told some writers they could promote their things on Twitter, and that was a thing that many writers did. And I assume some actors will do similar things. And then that's actually was- social media is on the list of things that the actors can't do, actually, Dan, especially huh. as it relates to studio based projects. So, I mean, we, you know, when I used to do these casting surveys, you know, every, every pilot season, back when the pilot season really mattered, you know, we talked a lot about the use of social media and if that makes a difference when you're hiring an actor. And a lot of the execs that I spoke to at the time said, of course it does, because that's a, that's marketing for them. If you're hiring an actor that's got, you know, who has 5 million followers on Twitter, that's a built in marketing. All they have to do is tweet that the show is on, you know, whatever time or streaming wherever it's a free ad to 5 million fans. So what the SAG after rules are saying now is don't do that at all. Don't, tweet in support of any of the work that you've done because you don't want they don't want to support the studios right now i mean as pissed off as the writers guild was that on day one of their strike this feels a hell of a lot stronger and this is moving into a time when of course 
there are so many things that uh, require promotion, whether it's the summer movie season, which obviously studios are counting on basically as the box office continues to rebuild after COVID. There is what ever is going to be happening at Comic-Con. I, I don't know. Like one Not of the much. things. Yeah. One of the things that the, uh, that one of the negotiators mentioned was that signing autographs at events is, is probably still acceptable. And I guess that's good, but it's not as if Tom Cruise is going to go sit at a booth on the floor at Comic-Con signing autographs. Uh, you know, that's, that's not how that works. Uh, the television critics association press tour for, uh, this summer has already been canceled and then, and we'll get to this in a little bit, cause there are these things called the Emmys. We're at the point of the year at which everybody wanted to be out promoting their Emmy nominees and getting promotion out, getting people out there campaigning for Emmys. And very explicitly, Fran Drescher and uh, the other negotiator said, yeah, that's that's the thing we're going to discourage people from doing. So, yeah. So no promotion of or publicity services for things like tours, personal appearances, interviews, conventions, fan expos, festivals. You're the, at the thick of summer of the summer festival circuit. For your consideration events, panels, premieres and screenings, award shows, junkets, podcast appearances, social media, studio showcases. I mean, it's going to be it, you know, strap in. It's hot labor summer 2023. We didn't take enough advantage of that brief window where we should have been having actors on to promote their stuff on the podcast instead of uh, showrunners. So, oh, well, missed opportunity. You know what, though? I'm I'm very proud of our shift to, to strike zone. Oh, so I'm not worried about that. <laughs> there, there is there is no point at which I feel as if we missed out by not having a fun promotional interview. I'm simply saying there was a window where we could have got, taken that approach and we did not. And it is what it is. Uh, what did you take away from the conversation or the press conference rather regarding basically the issues and how they're laying them out in terms of priorities? I mean, it sounds like it's AI is, is central, which we kind of knew, you know, going back, we know that the AMPTP tries to get all of the, the director's guild rarely, if ever strikes, right? So obviously they've, they've already have their deal. They tried to apply the DGA's deal to SAG-AFTRA, that didn't work because the, the DGA is not worried about being replaced by AI. Actors are, right? There's chatter that the AMPTP proposed background actors being paid uh, for one day of work and then signing away their likenesses so that they can be replaced by AI in the future. Who the hell would sign that, right? Like, I'm going to be replaced by AI tomorrow? No, never going to sign anything like that, right? So it sounds like that that's part of it. Obviously, the, the streaming viewership transparency is a, is a key issue because they're trying to tie residuals to that. But how do you do how do you tie residuals to, to something that no one really knows? Right. I've heard uh, so many different things uh, about this, whether it's which service that they're trying to use, just a complete and total unwillingness to budge. So it just doesn't sound like they're they're close at all. Right. You know, and as we record this, it's now, you know, Thursday afternoon, almost at 4 p.m. Pacific. And. We haven't seen a response from SAG that outlines what their proposals are. And what we have seen is what the AMPTP, which obviously, again, represents the studios and streamers, have said. And I'll just run through some of it. But it's they're claiming it's the highest percentage increase in minimums in 35 years, a 76% increase in high-budget SVOD foreign residuals. I mean, honestly, there's you know, from everything that I'm reading in this, it, there's nothing that really goes into in depth about AI. So we know that the Writers Guild 
and the Actors Guild, what they are looking for in these new contracts are much more in step. So my question is for the AMPTP, which obviously if you're a member of the AMPTP and you'd like to do an interview, you have an open invitation to come on TV's Top 5. We would love to hear from you, but we obviously are, are, are know that that's not going to happen. But my question is, what happens next? What will the who will the AMPTP negotiate with? Is it going to are they going to go back to the table with writers? Are they going to keep going with SAG? They've had you know four weeks that produced absolutely nothing. That really just all that did was really piss off the nanny. I mean, or are they going to try and negotiate together? Will there be a federal mediator involved in in any or all? So that's the biggest my biggest question right now. But as for uh, fans of movies and TV series. What can you expect in the immediate future? I think that's what probably our, our listeners are probably looking for right now. You're going to get what you're going to get. Anything that's already in the can, great. But don't expect to read any postmortems from actors about big exits or big events on shows or movies or there's no no junkets like you know all, all of these stories that that get picked up all over the world like you know we're we're curious like obviously we're not going to have any actors on on our show anytime soon promoting their work because no one's going to be promoting their work because you're effectively promoting the studios and the strikes are designed to hurt the studios because the studios are hurting the the actors and the writers so i mean it, it it's just it's such a complete mess but it's also a justifiable one and because what you're looking at is a business model that has completely changed and both the writers and the actors are looking to be fairly compensated but how do you measure what's fair when you can't when you have no idea who's doing what when you have no idea how many people are really watching Ted Lasso or Stranger Things or any of these other streaming shows so yeah strap yeah. in buckle up it's it's definitely going to be a bumpy ride uh yeah the, the in the Bob Iger interview that we're going to discuss later as well just going to keep teasing that eventually maybe we'll just get to it and go yeah that was the thing that happened and we'll have covered all of it <laughs> which would be totally fine he talked about how this was going to be disruptive to the industry at which point no presumably shit, presumably everyone in in every single guild said yes that that is what <laughs> that is what labor unrest is supposed to be about it is supposed to be disruptive to the industry uh the yeah the exact phrasing that the amptp used in their statement regarding what their AI proposal was, and this is really and truly hilariously meaningless. It's uh, they say that they offered a quote groundbreaking AI proposal which protects performers' digital likenesses, including a requirement for performers' consent for the creation and use of digital replicas or for digital alterations of a, perform of a performance. Well, if you're <laughs> if you're bringing in a room full of extras and you hand them a form to sign, and again, this is just what they said at the press conference, and that form says we give authorization to use our likeness for in perpetuity. Well, I mean, that is absolutely what could be implied by what it was that the MPTP said that they were offering. You know, it's, uh, it's well, we asked and you signed the piece of paper. It, it is what everybody is trying to say. And it's what the writers were trying to say. It's now what the actors are trying to say is that the studios, all things considered, if they could reduce overhead costs of, for example, eliminating the need to ever have extras again, or eliminating a writer's room by allowing uh, AI systems to brainstorm story ideas and then have two writers do all the writing, they would save a lot of money. And this is, of course, absolutely true. Of course they would. They would also cost thousands upon thousands upon thousands. I mean, if we're talking about a stadium of extras, literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people jobs in order so that 
David Zaslav can make however much money he makes. Uh, that's just, it, it's, it's hard to see as if anyone would feel as if this was a sympathetic stance on their part. But maybe, maybe my sympathies are just already misdirected and what can you do? Number two. Speaking of things likely to be impacted by the dual strike, the nominations for the 75th annual Emmys are out and huzzah, Dan. Better Call Saul's Rhea Seahorn did get nominated for her supporting role. <laughs> and and that's just what we're, we're doing this segment on is, is yay, yep, Rhea Seahorn was nominated. Yeah. She she was nominated last year too. I mean, like, come on, yawn, whatever. And then I saw several people on Twitter entirely accurately saying that really she should have been nominated for, uh, for lead actress because she's totally a lead on the show or was a lead on the show. And that because she took some of the space in the supporting category. Carol Burnett couldn't get a nomination. Poor Carol Burnett. Fortunately, Carol Burnett's been recognized for enough things. Um, So yeah, it's all a a ripple effect. But ultimately, if you look at the supporting uh, categories on the drama side, if you weren't on Succession or or White Lotus, you probably weren't getting a nomination anyway. And if you're a guest actor on the drama side, if you weren't in Succession or The Last of Us, you literally weren't getting a nomination. Uh, yeah, the, this this is definitely one of those things that we have talked about the past couple of years and that is becoming more and more manifestly clear. Uh, our colleague Scott Feinberg wrote about it in his column. Angie Hahn and I wrote about it in our back and forth. It is just so very obvious that at this point, the Emmy voters are incapable of keeping up with the amount of television that exists, and they are just basically saying, here are the seven or eight shows that we like, and they are getting 15 to 27 nominations apiece. Yes, that's right. 27 nominations for Succession. And there's just no room for anything else. And so all of the various things that I ramble about all the time, you know, my my love for reservation dogs or whatever, so many shows like that are getting entirely unrecognized. Uh, But it's not just the little shows, uh, friend of the five, Joe Adalian was on, on Twitter yesterday, ranting about the various broadcast shows that weren't getting recognized and saying that it was only pure snobbery that, uh, would cause ghosts on CBS not to get nominated. And I just don't think that's true. I think what's true is that Abbott elementary got a, a bunch of nominations, certainly could have gotten more, but ghost did not. That is absolutely true. But on the other hand, lots of things that are very populist shows got nominated. Nominations for things like House of the Dragon. That's not representative. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can take a look at, at some of let, Let's just run down some of the big numbers here. So <laughs> you, you, don't want, you don't want this to just be an entirely amorphous thing where I talk in circles for 15 minutes and then go, hmm, no, did we actually discuss up, the Emmy nominations? <laughs> I'm just going to tee you up here. So Please, give me a structure, in, in, please. <laughs> in terms of all of the nominees, the most nominated programs, obviously you said Succession scored a leading 27. That was followed by The Last of Us with 24, The White Lotus with 23, and then Ted Lasso with 21. So it's it's pretty wild to see that showing with the top three most nominated shows, all HBO shows. And then you've got obviously Ted Lasso, which had to, you know, say what you will. And then let's just run, we can get run down some of the, the key uh, categories here. So we've got best drama series. You've got Andor, Better Call Saul, The Crown, House of the Dragon, The Last of Us, Succession, The White Lotus, Yellow Jackets, Comedy series, you've got Abbott Elementary, Barry, The Bear, Jury Duty, 
Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, and Wednesday, Limited or Anthology Series, Beef, Dahmer, Daisy Jones and the Six, Fleischman is in Trouble, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Dan, I mean, you're right. It We are seeing a lot of these nominees just bulk up and, and, and edge out some of these tiny shows that I hear it from you every single week that just need some attention and the TV Academy just can't find, find, you know, if it, if, if, unless there's an ad for reservation dogs airing during a succession episode, I don't know that they're aware of that show. Yeah. You let alone, you know, some, some of the darlings that we love like high school or, you know, et cetera. Or somebody somewhere, et cetera. All of uh, like, there are, there are legitimate small, tiny shows, small, tiny shows, financed by multi-billion dollar corporations. There are no indies in this world whatsoever. And there is no, you, you cannot look at those nominations and tell me that there's anything going on resembling snobbery. You know, that if that if the drama nominees include a video game adaptation, a Star Wars series, um, and, you know, come on, that, that's just not, there's, there's no snobbery there. If the comedy nominees include Ted Lasso, an Adams Family spinoff, um, The Bear, which everybody's talking about, Abbott Elementary, which is on broadcast television. If the limited nominees include freaking Dahmer monster, monster the Jeffrey Dahmer story, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, these are not snobby nominations. They are, in fact, very, very, very middle-brow, middle-of-the-road nominations. Yeah, populist. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what they are, and that is what the Emmys do, and I don't necessarily know that that's wrong. I think that probably it's some what resembles what they're supposed to do. It just definitely doesn't resemble the best shows on TV. But every once in a while, you look at the categories and you go, okay, that's a that's a thing they got right. And uh, like I'm trying to avoid being annoyed by by certain things where it's entirely just my opinion. Like I know people love jury duty. And that's the other thing. Jury duty, completely and totally a populist show. Jury duty, you go back and you look at the critical reviews for it. My review, which was very negative, was not an outlier. That is how the initial reviews went. Now, the fact that jury duty also got nominated for a bunch of TCA awards does suggest that it has critical approval. So that's that's fine. But it's a show that caught on with people. It's also a show that is on a, uh, a free with ads service that is available and sampled to on Amazon. Exactly. The, the main Amazon page. Ava- yeah. available to everybody. So, so it is, it is thoroughly available to all of the people. Um, but yeah, just it, it, as, as I say every year, I can go through and I can find nominations and nominees that make me extraordinarily happy. And then I can find things that make me extraordinarily unhappy. And it comes down to what I'm going to concentrate on at any given moment. And so like, let's say I want to be happy (laughs) because sometimes I do. I'm really happy to see Andor getting that nomination. Andor is an angry off-brand Star Wars show. Yes, it's a Star Wars show, but it is a story about increasing autocracy and about the way that corporate interests destroy the common man. It is an angry, bitter show that is very much of the moment in this summer of labor unrest. I'm happy to see it nominated there. Uh, But I'm also happy to see The Last of Us nominated. It's a really, really good popular show. and, And that's great. I'm happy to see Better Call Saul, but I would have liked to have seen more nominations for Better Call Saul. It got, I think, seven, which means that its total nomination count is now up to 53 total. 
And I don't see how it's going to win any of the seven that it's up for, which would mean that it will end up 0 for 53 for its Emmy run, which is going to be one of the strangest statistics ever. Especially compared with the success of Breaking Bad. Oh, it is. It is so odd. Like, but even like I would have put money on Brian Cranston getting nominated for guest actor and it was going to be a bad, dumb nomination, but I would have put money on that. Good thing I didn't, but instead, no, the guest actor nominations are all Last of Us in Succession. And, you know, sure, those those are all good. Are there other great performances, though, that could have been there? Sure. But all over, you look at things like that, like like the, the things that are sort of really getting stuck in my craw are things like Rachel Weisz not getting nominated for Dead Ringers, because that to me seems like such a, a total no-brainer. You know, you're talking about an, an Oscar-winning actress playing two roles at the same time in a very, very serious and thoughtful and fairly well-reviewed adaptation of a well-liked film, and they couldn't get a nomination for her. They, you know, Amazon couldn't get a nomination for Emily Blunt either in a great performance in the English. Uh, lots of yeah, things and- like that. Yeah, I mean, as we get into all the acting nominees, I'm just going to run through the four big categories. You've got actor in a drama series, Jeff Bridges for The Old Man, Brian Cox for Succession, Kieran Culkin for Succession, Bob Odenkirk for Saul, Pedro Pascal for The Last of Us, Jeremy Strong for Succession, actress in a drama series, Sharon Horgan for Bad Sisters, Melanie Linsky for Yellow Jackets, Elizabeth Moss for The Handmaid's Tale, Bella Ramsey for The Last of Us, Carrie Russell for The Diplomat. That's the one that really surprised me the most. Sarah Snook for Succession. And then you've got actress in a comedy series, Christina Applegate for Dead to Me. Dan, we talked about that last week. Rachel Brosnahan for the final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Quinta Brunson for Abbott Elementary. Natasha Leone for Poker Face. Jenna Ortega for Wednesday. And then actor in a comedy series is Bill Hader for Barry. Martin Short for Only Murders in the Building. Jason Siegel for Shrinking, Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso, and Jeremy Allen White for The Bear. That one always also made me really happy, Dan. So got Quinta Brunson, Natasha Leone, and Jason Siegel, all former TV's top five guests. Huzzah, and Sarah Snook, a former TV's top yes, five guest. Yes, indeed, Sarah Snook. Lest also. you forget, Dan, come I, on. I just very rarely think of us as having straight up actors on the podcast, but occasionally we do. Um, so yeah, but there's there's Jason Siegel. Jessica Williams also got a nomination. No yeah, nomination for, But no nomination for Harrison Ford. That's how baffling. Did, how does that happen? That the is, star fuckery that they could have had had their had they nominated Harrison Ford and had their I don't know not been a SAG after strike. <laughs> yeah, no that it, that is that is that was one of the bigger head scratchers. Like to me, I could imagine Harrison Ford not getting nominated if it turned out that the voters simply just hadn't noticed that shrinking existed. But having noticed that shrinking existed, how do you leave Harrison Ford out? I have no answer for that. I also have no answer for what Brian Cox is doing in the lead actor in a drama series category because he was not a lead actor on Succession this season by any stretch of the imagination. Either he should have been a guest actor or a supporting actor. One or the other, I don't care which, he doesn't belong in that category. He is a weird outlier in that category. Um, but yeah, I, hey, I was happy to see Carrie Russell get her nomination. She was really, really good in The Diplomat. And, and that's a different sort of performance because it's easy, quote unquote. It's not easy. None of this is easy. But it's easy to get nominated if you're Elizabeth Moss and you're awesome and you just get tormented for 10 episodes. And that's what it is. Carrie Russell is just, it's just a great 
movie star, TV star style performance there. And I'm, I'm happy to see her getting recognized. Very happy to see Sharon Horgan and, and all the love that Bad Sisters got. It also got a writing nomination. It got a directing nomination. I really thought that was a show that, that had just kind of slipped under the radar. It is also, and I'm sure regular listeners are astounded that we made it this far into an Emmy segment without my complaining about categorization for any show based on uh, on comedy slash drama. Bad Sisters is completely a totally a dark comedy. It is it is not anything other than a dark comedy. I, and I don't understand how you could even watch it and think it was anything other than a dark comedy. But I feel the same way about uh, Succession and I feel the same way about White Lotus. And because White Lotus and Succession were as dominant as they were, that means that basically the only things that got acting nominations this year on the drama side, for the most part, were performances and from comedies. So very odd, but yeah, God. So happy for Jeremy Allen White, I guess. Happy for all the recognition of the bear. I spent a couple minutes going down the uh, a Twitter rabbit hole yesterday of uh, people on Twitter being outraged that Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't nominated um, and and then sort of strange people white knighting from out of nowhere to let them know that it was only season one of the bear that was actually not eligible this year. But like <laughs> just dozens upon dozens of people being angry and outraged about Jamie Lee Curtis not getting nominated for an award she wasn't eligible for this year. She'll be nominated next year. I don't think you need to, to worry about that. Um, God, what else do, what, what else do we have to talk about? I feel like there's definitely, well, I mean, the primary thing we have to talk about is the thing that you mentioned about the star fuckery and getting stars to the show, but there might not be a a show. (laughs) Yeah. The Emmys right now are currently scheduled to air Monday, September 18th on Fox, but, uh, yeah, we'll see if that holds. There's been a lot of speculation already that this could get pushed possibly to January, but we'll see, obviously, a lot a lot of things uh, in play here, a lot of factors involved. But uh, the one piece that we always talk about for the Emmys that I always enjoy uh, is the narrative about who came out on top among all the platforms. And, well, little surprise here this year is HBO and Max, once again, the leader among all the networks and streamers with 127 total nominations. HBO had a historic feat of having half of the drama series category, a feat only accomplished twice before by broadcast networks and not since 1992. HBO's total, however, is down 13 from the tally for the combined entities a year ago. Netflix trailed in second with 103. The HBO showing helped Warner Brothers Discovery lead all conglomerates with 181 when factoring in shows that are produced by Warner Brothers Television. Without that, however, Disney led the pack with 153. So you spend it on content, you make a lot of content, and it's good content, chances are you're going to be on the list. But the numbers the numbers there are all so strange, like trying to trying to figure out who's counting what under their tabulations yeah. and who gets credit for what. Yeah, this this started what was it last year when when the TV Academy decided, you know, like we're not we're not going to get into that, you know, however you want to submit the shows, that's how we're going to count them. So if you submit them as HBO Max and the platform is now just called Max, they're going to be recognized as HBO Max shows. So, I mean, it's just a, a giant mess uh, in terms of, you know, trying to keep score of this. But And, uh, and with Warner yeah. Brothers Discovery, they also get to take credit for Ted Lasso if they want to, right. which 
you know, uh, who, who Warner Brothers produces that for Apple. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Who wouldn't take credit for it? Um, yeah, trying to trying to figure out who gets credit for things. But basically, it turns out that the very, very large corporations with lots of different uh, entities under their banner that pour billions of dollars into programming each year. Uh, those are the um, shockingly. Those are the ones who did well. Uh, surprise, surprise. No, one of the things someone was pointing out to me uh, yesterday in, in comments was trying to figure out what's actually going to be eligible for Emmys next year. Because the combination of all of these shows that are ending, so your your successions and your Better Call Sauls and your, well, who the hell knows what's happening with Ted Lasso. Um, but also the various different shows that are at this point held up in production for God only knows how long by various strike related things. Who even knows? And you kind of have to wonder how many shows there are out there that were shooting 10 episode seasons that maybe finished five episodes that are going to try rushing a five episode mini season onto the air. If these things go on for, you know, however long they're planning on going, it, it could be a very strange Emmy year next year. Cause even if the strike, the strikes, uh, multiple strikes are settled relatively soon, how quickly are things going to ramp back up into production? How far along are things in production? How quickly can a show, can a big show finish a season and be back in time for, yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going to be on TV except for the bear. Yeah. The bear, the, the bear will yeah. be just fine. <laughs> and and this is also why you saw some of the broadcast networks see keep their writers' rooms going immediately after the season's wrapped and before the the contract expired, because if they have scripts that are already in the bank, they can they can get production up and running a lot faster. And obviously, that's that's the the pressure is that's where the pressure is going to hurt first is broadcast TV. So, and and the other piece that we're not talking about yet is scheduling, right? Like. When everyone came out of COVID and production got back up and running, a lot of things were dropped because of scheduling conflicts, right? Because all these actors that are in demand have different things that they've signed on to. Oh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna shoot this during my during my hiatus from this show, and then obviously, you know, when everything gets pushed pushed around because of of the delays because of COVID, a lot of the projects got got killed, right? Like the, remember the Evil Knievel miniseries that was going to star Milo Ventimiglia? That guy got axed <laughs> almost right away because he had to go back and do This Is Us, right? So is that going to be a factor as well? You know, because you're going to have not just all the writers scrambling to get all the stuff going, but now you've got all the actors that are going to have to be waiting until scripts are ready to, to shoot again, ramping back up, set build, everything. It's just, it's, it's going to be a complete chaos. But obviously a lot of things have to happen before we even get to that. So... Yeah, it's a very, very unsettled time right now in Hollywood. I say with some honesty, Leslie, that the only reason I remember that Milo Ventimiglia Evil Knievel project is because you keep asking if we remember it because it got pulled. So I have I no. I was excited about that. <laughs> you... I thought that was really good casting, and, and I was, and I, I'm a sucker for for Evil Knievel. So I, 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 I know you are a sucker for Evil Knievel and for Milo Ventimiglia. I like but Milo, yeah, good but... photographer, by the way. Hmm? Great photographer, by the way. <laughs> I, I like when actors have hobbies like this, you know, it's like, and he share he's very passionate about it and think, always sharing this stuff on Instagram. So I, I love, for, I love good photography. So I think we're going to learn, I, I think we're going to learn a lot about actor holiday, uh, hobbies in the next couple of weeks. Slash months, <laughs> That's so. fair. Yeah. <sighs> well, up next, we're going to return to the executive carousel with Disney making big moves to solidify its leadership future. And we teased this segment was coming and here we are. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. CEO Bob Iger, who rejoined the Mouse House in November after the shocking ouster of his first successor, Bob Chapek, extended his tenure for another two years. So rather than departing in 2024, Iger will remain on through 2026. He was recruited back to Disney to write the ship to write the ship after the pandemic era changes by Chapek, as well as to identify his next successor. And obviously the latter has become a big problem for, for Disney because Iger will now have outlasted many of the now former executives who were once believed to be his heir apparents. It obviously speaks to a lot of things that are happening in, in our industry right now. First, the challenge of being a CEO at a media company. And yes, you've got all the labor challenges, but also trying to course correct following years of overspending on content amid the streaming boom. But the obviously, you know, this is just one piece of, of this larger story. It's really this it, Iger's comments on, during the CNBC interview Thursday morning that really made a lot of headlines, Dan. Well, and we've and we've talked about some of them. So, uh, so, so, do you want to yeah. start with the ones that we've already talked about, or the ones that were actually substantive? I mean, he called. You know, uh, the optics here. You know, is that by the time that Bob Iger leaves Disney at the end of 2026, he will be a billionaire. And at the same, in the same breath, he called Hollywood's union demands "quote not realistic." Okay, sure. And by sure, I mean sarcasm. But like. That's insane. He is literally a billionaire saying that these demands are unreasonable and these companies are making billions and billions and billions of dollars. So anyway, I'm starting to get into opinion territory here and I promised not to do that. But some of the other big headlines, Dan, he's identifying linear networks like ABC, Freeform and FX as no longer being core assets to Disney. He's searching for a strategic partner for ESPN. I mean, Dan, these are fundamental pieces of Disney that I never thought that Iger would consider selling. And yet here we are. Well, I mean, breaking off pieces of some of the um, – on one hand, the industry trend is going towards consolidation and has been for many, many years. Yeah. On the other hand, I do think that we're going to see some of these things. And I think we're going to see similar things out of Warner Brothers Discovery where bits and pieces that maybe don't fit with the portfolio or aren't profitable under that umbrella – if they can find someone who will take it for money. And I, I don't know who, who is the logical strategic partner as, or whatever for ESPN. I, I don't have a clue. I mean, all the streamers would love to get into sports. We've seen, you know, Amazon spend, spend big to get uh, football rights. 
Um, we know Netflix is is becoming a big platform for that. They they would love to have to have uh, pro sports deals. They've had already kind of trying to dip their toe in with a lot of unscripted programming and docu series around uh, different sporting figures and everything else. But you know, Apple has spent money on Major League Baseball. I mean, these are things that are immediate impacts, right? That must be watched live, right? Like an award show. Although we won't talk about award show rating, ratings right now. But anyway this is a piece that that any streamer would want. So the question becomes is, will Disney sell or partner with Netflix on ESPN? I mean, these are two bitter rivals, right? Great question. Will Apple come, will Apple become part owner of, of ESPN? What's going to happen to ABC, Freeform, FX? I mean, I'm honestly surprised that FX was lopped in there because there's still the FX production studio, which is behind many hit shows, plus that whole library I mean, do you, if you sell or if you unload FX, does that include the content? I mean, I can't imagine that it would. That's such a huge piece of of Hulu that is also going going to be integrated at some point to Disney Plus. I'm sure down the line. I think they've already said that they're going to integrate to Hulu and, and Disney Plus in the future, and I just presume that FX content will be part of that. But yeah, I mean, we know that from what what's happened with the CW that. Nextstar is obviously interested in, in acquiring a lot of these like local stations and things like that. But to me, it's like the entire streaming model, you're now introducing ad-supported tiers. So you're turning streaming into broadcast. Then why would you unload a broadcast network? I, I just, I don't see that. It's just like the, the entire ecosystem needs to, to, to be repaired, whether it's your debuting a show first on streaming and letting making people pay for it to watch it without commercials and then dropping it on broadcast where you can further monetize it with ads but you know it goes back to that that Friday night lights deal that direct tv made right where you got it on that platform if you had you had to be a subscriber to direct tv to get the, to watch the final season of friday night lights and then what was it like 6 or 4 months later nbc was able to air it i mean it's these are this is how you have to monetize content right but then how do you monetize it on streaming if you don't have ads it, it yeah i mean i'm gonna keep quoting brand drescher and saying that the complete the business model has is completely upended been, been completely upended so. it's all confusing it all makes very little sense to me but it also makes no sense to me to with the industry on the verge of a uh, major labor related cataclysm to go on uh CNBC in front of a lush, wealthy, wealthy backdrop and talk about how things that the union wanted were unrealistic. That's uh, that also doesn't seem logical to me. But yeah. somewhere hey, David Zasloff is uh, saying, thanks, man, <laughs> for for one day, somebody David Zasloff worse than David Zasloff. And I hope that he is enjoying the day on the beach uh, <laughs> to celebrate the lack of hatred for one day. <laughs> Number five. Up next, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Dan, I have no idea what's premiering this week. I've been on vacation and I've been busy. Take us through it. There is so much freaking stuff this week. And I know I say that every week, but this this week feels extra. And, and I kind of went around taking a little bit of a, a poo-poo platter or buffet approach to things. And I didn't get to like so many different things. I didn't watch any episodes of season two of The Summer I Turned Pretty, Leslie. Jeez. But <laughs> I don't remember. Did I talk about Full Circle last week? I must have talked about Full Circle last week. 
You're I making a face, which could just mean <laughs> you weren't remember. listening when I, I can tell you who, who last week. I can tell you who won the home run derby, though. Vladdy. I, I can do that, too. Vl- Vladdy Jr. Vladdy Jr. I can, yeah, father first father-son father, duo, right? Exactly. Uh, I can but, also tell you that that Julio Rodriguez set a new derby record with 41 dingers in a, in a, in a round, and that he did it in front of his hometown crowd. The place was electric. And anyway. the and the Pete Alonso, whoever was pitching to him, kept uh, throw, kept going for spin rate rather than uh, throwing the ball <laughs> down the middle for him to hit home runs. Uh, I mean, Alonso was kind of hurt right before the derby, but I mean, he also was going up against forty one dingers. He knew that he wasn't going to do that. So the best thing for him, don't get hurt. Okay, this anyway. has absolutely nothing to do with nothing anything to do with anything at all. I'm going to pretend we just that really I, like talking about baseball. Eh, you and me, man. I'm going to pretend that I talked about Full Circle on Max last week. If I didn't, uh, Steven Soderbergh, Ed Salman, lots and lots of stars. One of two shows I could talk about this week involving Timothy Oliphant. I'm definitely going to talk about the other Timothy Oliphant show uh, significantly more because I assume that's the one that people actually want me to talk about. But instead, I'm going to go over a lot of the things that I kind of did just little bits and pieces of sampling this week. In some cases, it was fairly easy. FX sent out four episodes of the new season, season five of What We Do in the Shadows. And so I watched four episodes of What We Do in the Shadows, and that was pretty straightforward. And the the show really and truly at this point is just in a very, very, very solid and consistent rhythm, which makes it pretty pointless to review. Um, if you like What We Do in the Shadows, you'll probably like this season of what we do in the shadows. I thought that the fourth of the four episodes was easily the best of the episodes. I thought it had a lot of really fun cameos. Um, I thought it, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was a really good episode. The fourth one, I thought the first couple episodes, I liked the first episode, a lot of talk about Guillermo and whether or not he is or has become a vampire. And I thought they took a, an interesting and poignant approach to that, that I liked the middle episodes. The, little confused by who came up with the memo that the show needed more of Sean, the next door neighbor who doesn't know that they're vampires, but thinks they're gay. Uh, I I don't know why that necessarily was a thing that the show needed. I don't really find him all that funny. Or if I do find him funny, I find him funny in one episode per season doses. And he's kind of dominant in the the second and third episode, which confused me a little bit. Uh, But generally, I like what we do in the shadows. I know some people like it more than I do. And some people are definitely confused why it got no Emmy recognition at all. Could have gone through the list of FX shows that unfortunately didn't get recognition. And that includes what we do in the shadows. It includes reservation dogs, which I'll keep complaining about the reservation dogs did get nominated for sound editing. So there's that. Uh, And Atlanta got nominated for cinematography and that's it atlanta at one point was like an awards juggernaut and instead final season of atlanta one nomination for cinematography come on did people watch the season did they see the tyler perry episode did they see the the goofy movie episode come on it was a good season to tv that's very very weird okay (laughs) continuing along with things i sampled uh there's a new season of after party and the after party of course uh that would be apple tv plus and I think probably a lot of people felt as if the show with its very, very, very high concept was probably best served as a limited series and didn't necessarily know how it would function coming back for a second season. And I watched half of the season and I'm still not completely sure. It's a show that is designed to be erratic because the whole premise is there's murder mystery. Each character kind of tells their own version of the story in a different cinematic style. So if you don't like one, you might like the next. And so you stick with it and you, you find amusement in the episodes you do, and maybe a couple of them you don't. And 
I, I thought the first episode, which is the one that's already premiered, I thought it was really bad. I, I thought it I thought it was entirely unfunny and unfortunately set up a a plot for the season. Um, basically, Zoe Chow's sister, um, played by Poppy Liu, uh, is about to get married to a sort of very, very strange, lizard-loving, wealthy guy played by Zach Woods, and he's found dead in the first scene, and so naturally, murder mystery ensues, they bring Timothy Haddish in, blah, blah, blah. Um, I thought the first episode, which was largely Sam Richardson's perspective and kind of vaguely in a misadventures rom-com style, I I thought it was kind of awful, and I was on the verge of quitting. Then the second episode, though, is kind of Jane Austen Bridgerton-y, and I thought that was kind of cute. And then I thought that the next two episodes were really good. The first ep- uh, first of them is uh, Paul Walter Hauser as a hard-boiled film noir hero, and I, th- I thought that was solid because a lot of the fun of the show is how will they play around with the genre, how will they... You know, if if you are a nerd, it's, ooh, look, they changed film stocks. Ooh, look, aspect ratio is different. Ooh, look, the lighting is different. And, and of course, Daniel Pemberton's score shifts with each episode, stuff like that. And I thought the film noir episode, which is the, the third episode, was really good. And then I thought the fourth episode, which features uh, ooh, former podcast guest Anna Conkle, uh, star of Hulu's Penis, um, it's uh, her character is basically as the hero of a Wes Anderson movie. I thought that was a a real hoot. And then the fifth episode was a faux heist movie based around a new character played by Jack Whitehall. And I thought that was awful and I stopped watching and I moved on to other things. So (laughs) uh, really kind of an up and down season. And a lot of the performances are kind of the reason you're going to keep watching. And so... I almost always find Zach Woods to be hilarious and he is absolutely a hoot here. And I mentioned uh, Paul Walter Hauser and Anna Conkle and and they're both really good. Paul Walter Hauser is such a strangely versatile actor. Uh, Emmy nominee for Blackbird in which he was fantastic. Some people of course will always just continue to love him as Cobra Kai star Paul Walter Hauser. He played Paul Walter Hauser in uh, Bupkis. You know, no one, no one talks about Bupkis. Really good show. Definitely got zero Emmy nominations. Not really surprising. Still in all. So yeah. Uh, so really kind of mixed on on After Party. While I really liked three of the episodes and really disliked two of them, I don't know if that's a convincing enough reason to keep going. Um, I sampled three episodes of Foundation on Apple TV Plus, which is also returning. The first season, I think I called it Gorgeous But Tedious. And it does remain one of the more beautiful shows on television. It is, and particularly in the sci-fi space, this this is really kind of the peak of what television budgets can do when it comes to special effects and world building. And so I give it endless credit for that. It's also still tedious, what I'll say is it's pretty clear that they put some effort this season into making it a little bit more narratively driven. Uh, there's actually, there are some jokes in a couple of episodes. I'm pretty sure there were no jokes in the first season. Uh, and so those are kind of, and there are a lot of new characters. Uh, some of them played by really, really good actors. So people like Ben Daniels pops up and he's very good. Jared Harris has, has a lot more to do, um, which I guess is not a spoiler because you saw at the end of the season that there was going to be more of him. 
Um, but it's it's still a show that my emotional connection is very, very low on. And so I can sit there and I can watch and I can be really impressed with the technical aspect of it. And it's it's really a small sham that the show last Emmy season, not this one, was not a bigger player in technical categories than it was. Uh, but in, in the balance, it's the kind of show that I'm glad exists because I know that there is an audience out there for hard sci-fi. And this is unquestionably hard, wonky sci-fi. But I kind of wonder if that audience is going to feel as if the more narratively driven and occasionally humorous approach this season is a violation of the Isaac Asimov books and their tone. So, yeah, foundation. Um, let's see what else I can quickly touch on a variety of things. I watched all of the season of Project Greenlight. If you like Project Greenlight, it's back on uh, Max now. It's pretty obvious that it's yet another season built around the making of a really bad movie. Uh, the bad movie also on HBO Max now. I'm assuming it's a bad movie. Maybe it's great. It'd be really funny if it turned out the movie was somehow spectacular. Who knows? Definitely there's no hint in the actual series itself that it might be spectacular. Uh, the new mentors this year are Kumail Nanjani, uh, Issa Rae, who also produced the series, and uh, Gina Prince-Brythewood. And they were all very, very busy with other things. That's sort of the thing that jumps out is that uh, Kumail was making Welcome to Chippendales, for which he was an Emmy nominee. Issa was making the Barbie movie, which... Now she won't be able to promote anymore because no one can promote anything. Uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood was making uh, The Woman King, etc. So if you like Project Greenlight, though, definitely check it out. But really, okay, fine. So I've just been babbling and babbling and babbling. And the really the thing that people want me to talk about is Justified uh, City Primeval. I'm, I'm fairly confident that that is the thing that the majority of listeners are curious about assuming they haven't read my review which is up on thr and which says exactly what i'm about to say which is that really and truly no one needed more justified that that just has to be made clear as the first and foremost thing is justified ended damn well we dug cole together is as good an ending as any television show with like a couple possible exceptions like Maybe The Shield maybe had a better finale or something. For the most part, though, We Dug Cold Together is about as good an ending as any series could possibly ever have. That being said, Justified City Primeval is really good. It's not great. It's not season two of Justified Good because there's no character who's as good as Mags Bennett. Um, and whatever, that's that's fine. The question is, did they do damage to a series that ended perfectly by attempting to bring it back? And the answer is no, they absolutely did not do damage to it. And that to me is really as high praise as I can give under certain circumstances is they didn't ruin it. They didn't screw it up. Yay. They did a lot of really smart things. And the first and foremost thing that they did was smart was they started with an Elmore Leonard novel that didn't have Raylan Givens in it at all. And that meant that it didn't have Raylan Givens's structure. And so they stick Raylan Givens in City Primeval High Noon in Detroit. The character who was actually about is kind of slotted in in a cameo in a later episode just for the people who read the book. Uh, but it allowed them to move the narrative to Detroit, played by Chicago. Doesn't look much like Detroit. That's okay. Not as if... Uh, 
not as if Harlan County was always perfectly represented by wherever they happen to be filming it. Um, but that means that all of the things that were basic to Justified, the settings, the various different crowders and whatnot, the various other U.S. Marshals, whether it's Nick Searcy's art or uh, Sniper Marshall and uh, I believe Rachel is her name, Rachel, Erica Tezo. Anyway, none of them are there. And for the most part, the series does not, this is City Primeval, does not spend its time being like, hey, remember this character from the series? Here's what they're up to. Hey, remember this character? Let's get them on the phone so that they can have a five-second scene so that fans can point and go, ha, huh, I know that. It's not that. It is a standalone story. The story begins with uh, Raylan Givens on the road with his daughter, Willa, played by uh, Oliphant's real-life daughter, Vivian Oliphant, and uh, in her first screen role. And they're taking her to a disciplinary summer camp because she broke a classmate's nose, entirely fitting, given the amount of anger in her DNA. Uh, But after a failed car hijacking, they end up in Detroit for a hearing. Things go poorly. At the same time, there's a murder, and Raylan's boss says, work with the Detroit PD, and that's pretty much just what he does. There's no going back, and that's that's what it is. It is a it is a murder mystery that Raylan is trying to investigate. It involves a character uh, whose 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 government name is uh, Clement Manzel, but folks call him the Oklahoma Wild Man. He's an unrepentant killer, and he kills an awful lot of people here. In my review, I said he's he's kind of one of the show's supernatural bad guys, as opposed to someone like Max Bennett, who was a human bad guy. And I think ultimately by the end, I grew a little tired of his supernaturalness. I wanted a little bit more nuance from it, but he still looks and feels like a justified character. And Raylan Givens still looks and feels like Raylan Givens. There are some alterations because of time and There are some acknowledgments that his version of law and order is not really acceptable in uh, 2023. Whether it was acceptable in 2010 is something entirely different. But what's really changed Raylan is being a girl dad, is is having Willa along with him. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how people respond to Vivian Oliphant because she's not an actress. She's this is her first role. And she doesn't sound like an actress and she doesn't have the mannerisms of an actress. And this is a show that really and truly does invite a certain kind of mannered acting. People are trying to basically be characters in an Elmore Leonard book, and that requires a certain approach. And she's not doing that. And I think I went through this like journey with her performance where my initial reaction was, huh, who is she and is she an actress? And then the next reaction was to actually look at who was playing the part and go, oh, it's Timothy Oliphant's daughter. I see. I get it now. And then by the end of the first episode, I was like, okay, she's actually completely natural. And the chemistry between the Oliphants is completely natural and totally likable and brings out something totally different in Raylan. And the story goes in a place where Willa can't be following along the whole time. And she's absent for a number of episodes. And I found myself missing the character and I found myself missing the performance and I found myself missing the softness that it occasionally brought out. Now I've made it this far without talking about the new additions and the new additions really are the reason why people should, should watch particularly, uh, Ellis and Vondi Curtis Hall. 
who are both just outrageously good. Uh, Anjanou Alice in particular, she plays a defense attorney who butts heads with Raylan, and then there's some flirtation that goes on. And it is just such a good and different relationship. Anjanou Alice is always great. And she and Oliphant are fantastic together. Vondi Curtis Hall plays a former session musician turned drug dealer turned bar owner. Great performance. Um, Boyd Holbrook, who plays the Oklahoma wild man and is spending his summer basically menacing aging action icons with a mustache because he did the same thing in uh, the Indiana Jones movie. He's good. I, I think he would have been better if they'd given more to his girlfriend character that's played by the great Adelaide Clemens from Rectify. She, I wish they'd given her more to do. That's that's all I can say is she's good, but if anyone who's seen Rectify knows Adelaide Clemens is tremendous and that she could have done much more and that maybe if they'd given that character more to do, the Oklahoma Wild Man would have been more of a fully realized character. Bottom line, though, the tough guy dialogue, all terrific. The menace and the pacing, really, really good. Someone commenting on my review asked if they could just jump in and watch City Primeval without having watched Justified. My initial reaction, first of all, is, why would you want to do that? Watch Justified. I mean, come on, if you know me, what else would my reaction have possibly been? That is the way I roll. Come on, I'm a completist. But I think you could. I think I think you could just jump in. Uh, if you just said, I want to watch Anjanou Ellis, and I want to watch Monty Curtis Hall, and I want to watch Boyd Holbrook, and I like Timothy Oliphant and other things, but for some reason I haven't seen Justified, I think you could ju- you could jump in here and you would completely understand what was happening. You wouldn't understand the character arc for Raylan Gibbons coming out of a different TV series that you hadn't seen, but you'd be able to figure out that he was a little bit long in his tooth and he was a lawman who who was maybe a little quick on the trigger, etc. You'd be able to figure it out. So I think you could watch this first and without any context. I wouldn't tell you you want to because Justified with the exception of season five is so good. Um, Season two, the season with uh, Marco Martindale is really just a magnificent season of TV. And and the rest of the show, again, other than season five, damn, damn good. Uh, But City Primeval is is just a solid return. Um, Haven't even given credit to uh, Dave Andron and Michael Dinner, who do a very good job of steering the ship. you know, they're both veterans, obviously, of the original series. Michael Dinner directed much of it. Dave Andron was a regular writer. Graham Yost, not a regular participant here on this new season. He was busy with other various things, uh, Silo on uh, Apple TV Plus, for example. And it does miss some of the the humor that he brought to it. it it's just not as funny a season. It is, it is darker, murkier season. But so it goes. I talked about a bunch of other things in this segment. People wanted to hear about Justified City Primeval. It's really good. If you like Justified, you aren't going to feel as if this violated your memories of Justified. And that is a really, really good tribute to it. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, please leave a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on... Twitter, Blue Sky, Threads, 
whatever it is, come say hi to us on social media. I'm not sure what social media sites we're actually going to be on next week, but you know, whatever. We're happy to see you. <laughs> and if you have uh, a question that you would like to hear us address in a future mailbag segment, or if you would like one of very few collectible TV's top five stickers, you can email us at TV's top five. That's the numeral five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply